I like I literally don't know how I could live without Wawa. It was funny. We um <laughs> we recently were a little south of Richmond on ninety five mm-hmm. and there was a big billboard that's like, you know, exit such and such last Wawa before Florida. <gasps> I feel like if we were on a road trip down to Florida, I'd be like, we have to stop. Like I know it's just kind of a fancier <laughs> gas station, but we can we cannot leave without stopping at Wawa. The rest of the country will never know. <laughs> episode of My Favorite Feminist. My name is Megan and I'm here with my co-host Milena. Hey guys, you're listening to the bi-weekly podcast that explores feminist figures in the arts and sciences. I'm recording in Virginia where I'm on traditional Powhatan land. And I'm hanging out in Philly where I'm on traditional Lenape land. Today we're learning about a Japanese-American sculptor and also an American botanist. When was the last time I did a botanist? I don't know, but actually I've technically covered a botanist too. You know, we sprinkle them here and there. Yeah, they're a fun toss-up, you know, especially if they do their own illustrations. It's really 50-50 whether or not they qualify for arts or science. But really, it's both. You know, I like I like the merging of those two things. It's pretty great. I am I am both sides of the brain. So wasn't the last botanist you did, like a Mexican-American explorer? Yeah, Inez Mejia. Okay. Yeah, she, she went all over the place. But that was like the first season, so I thought I, I, would, I would bring a botanist back into light. And your scientist today, was she like all over the place? Trekking out in the mountains? like Yeah. So that's something I wanted to touch on. When I think of botanists, I do not think of explorers. But, like, that's just, I guess, my own personal biases. Because every time we do a botanist, or the, the times that we have, like, they've been everywhere. And they're willing to get in, like, the really dirty places. It's impressive. Yeah. But yeah, the botanist that I covered was Marianne North, who's a Victorian botanist. And she did all her own watercolor illustrations. And she had traveled the South Pacific in the time where, like, that was already difficult to do as a Westerner. But to be in big Victorian skirts and trekking up mountains, it's it takes a lot of tenacity to do it. Yeah, I think any time, like, oh, like a person is working with Earth, you just you just got to be okay with getting dirty. Like the geologist from a couple weeks ago, like Mm -hmm. she (laughs) she didn't care. (laughs) So, yes, my botanist name today Her name was Mary Agnes Chase, and some of you may know her for a different reason, but I'm going to go through mostly her botany life, and then we'll hit on the other reason in a minute. Okay. I'm intrigued. So, she was born April 29th, 1869 in Iroquois County, Illinois. Uh, Dad was an Irish railway worker named Martin or Martin John Miara, and then Mom's name was Mary Brannock Miara. And Mary was the third of six children, so big family. But dad died a few years after she was born, Mm -hmm. and the family moved to Chicago. So she was basically raised by her mom and her gran, and I have no idea why they changed her last name to Meryl, but they did. Oh. I don't know if that was like a maiden name or what's going on with that, but they were like, no, we don't have that last name anymore. Um, Yeah, I know Irish-American discrimination was also a thing at this time. So I don't know if maybe that played into it. Oh, yeah. That's probably it. Miara might be like a traditional like Irish name. I don't know. But, yeah, they changed her last name. And then there's not really a lot about Mary Agnes Chase, uh, but we do get that she was interested in plants at a pretty early age. 
There was no real formal education. In fact, Mary's education ended after elementary school. Okay. I mean, yeah, especially for the late 1800s, early 1900s. That's not surprising, yep. unfortunately. Nope. She finished, like, fifth grade, and then she's out. Yeah. I don't know. She just kind of, like, putted around until she met an am a man named William Ingraham Chase when she was about 19. And she's young. It's the late 1800s, and that's usually the end of her story. Time to get married. Start making babies. Yeah. We can all go, I'll go home now. Okay. <laughs> We're done. That's it. Thank you for joining us today. <laughs> that's it. Actually, a year later, her husband died. Oh, jeez. Okay. Tuberculosis. Oh, no. We've been doing <laughs> so good. I, I know. <laughs> it's been a few episodes since that's made like a guest star appearance. Oh, tuberculosis. But here we are. <laughs> Damn it. Okay. Every fucking time. So, you know, what was a lady to do after the death of her brand spanking new husband? She had to support herself. Okay. All right. Yeah. Did she end up getting married again? No. Oddly enough, she did not. She just decided she was going to work. She didn't have a kid. Like, I don't really know. I guess she just like... Like, she could go home and live with her mother, mm -hmm. but I guess once you're, like, out away from that, you suddenly have just, like, a tiny bit of freedom, even if you had a husband, and I'm sure that's probably what, like, kept her going, is, like, we can go from here. Yeah, to build on that. Yeah. So, yeah, she had to support herself, and she did this as a proofreader for the Inter-Ocean Newspaper. Based in, yeah, based in Illinois. In her free time, she would collect grass and leaves and draw them. So she worked for an ocean newspaper, but she liked plants. Very weird. Uh, and of course, this was a great stepping stone for her because while she was working there, she was able to take classes, specifically botany courses at the University of Chicago. Oh, hey, that's a big bonus. Yeah, she was like, yeah. Whatever, I got this. Yeah. So somewhere in the midst of all that, this guy named Ellsworth Jerome Hill saw her interest in plants and her sketches and was like, I like this lady. And then he hired her to illustrate pictures for his own scientific publications because not every scientist is great at illustrations. Mm -hmm. But he was in a, like a big American botanist, like a really well-known one. And this meant that her publications and illustrations caught the eye of a wider audience and her name was starting to stick in people's minds. And then he didn't just, like, hire her. He also suggested that she took, like, a civil service exam to become an illustrator for the USDA. And she was like, all right, oh, I'll do it. Okay, cool. After a while, she met and hung out with another pretty big botanist named Charles Frederick Millspaugh. And she illustrated after she got certified for him. And they were at the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago and the Division of Agrostology at the U.S. Department of Agriculture in D.C. Okay, what the hell is that? Exactly. <laughs> like, what the, what the fuck is agrostology? Grass. It's grass. That, okay. <laughs> she studied grass. All right. That is super specific, but all right. <laughs> so, at the Division of Forage Plants for the USDA, she met a dude named Albert Spear Hitchcock, and he was like, yo, this chick knows her grass. <laughs> <laughs> it does not sound super exciting for me it sounds fucking awful but for her and her crew this was amazing she had support from some pretty big botany names i mean it's like the scientist that you covered a while back and you're like she specialized in corn i was like oh jesus <laughs> what i'm okay all right but like by the end of it and you're like and that's how she made discoveries about DNA relating to the human, like, biome. You're like, oh, shit, okay. 
So I really hope maybe it's another kind of twist like that. Uh, I oddly enough, this one isn't quite as twisty, but it's just okay. one of those moments where you're like, "Why is this name? Like, why do people know this name?" She just like stared at grass and like drew pictures or whatever, right? Yeah. But, I mean, it is important because somebody has to do it. Somebody has to, like, classify these these plants and figure out, like... Like, knowing these plants also helps you understand the land that we're on and how to keep them thriving and how to keep a biome going instead of, like, wrecking it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, I mean, I don't know if she was involved with this at all, but I know how in, like, the Midwest we completely disrupted, like, natural prairie grass and how that contributed to the dust bowl yeah in like the 1920s and 30s because we completely like ravaged that natural grass structure exactly that had like real world implications it doesn't seem like that serious but like everything everything kind of works together right Mm -hmm. and with her it was there weren't a lot of plants known at the time because it was like the early 1900s so she was like she 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 found a lot of them, a lot of species, but we'll get we'll get into that. Okay. Yeah, so she worked at the Division of Forage Plants, later transformed into the Smithsonian. There she just focused on Penisae, which is a botanical tribe. And this is the little bit of science we're getting into because when I saw this, I was like, what in the actual fuck is a botanical tribe? <laughs> I mean, I I have no idea. <laughs> so I'm I'm, 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 mm, mm, I am shook, shook. Here's why. There are more taxonomic ranks than the ones I taught you, and my life is a goddamn lie. Okay. Do you remember what I mean by taxonomic? Um, like, just categories. Yeah, there's, like, major categories and then subcategories. Domain, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. Yeah, that. That, Okay. <laughs> there are tribes there are super tribes what the fuck are super tribes what are y'all botanists doing with your life i don't understand i just what i tried to get into it but like unless i like actually had a like a textbook on botany i would have i i would i still don't i still don't is that a classification specific to botany yes oh okay all right like i i guess i just like only really knew like the general yeah but whatever it's fine it's fine it's fine (laughs) so panacea physical characteristics there are so many of them i really couldn't tell you all of them and i'm sure they're like you're like splitting hairs between each one of these um like there's got to be some like in-depth scientific explanation why this panacea is different than this panacea i don't know i'm not gonna get into it if you're a plant person that just sounds like an Italian dish to me. It's, I'm very hungry, so now, like, all I'm thinking about, like, I'm starving. Yeah, like, so. I'll have a, a dish of the panacea, and, oh, can I get a side salad, too? That Yeah, that'd be lovely. Oh, my gosh. I know. If you're a plant person and you're interested, you can always check out her journals and collaboration work. The names of her most well-known published works will be in the show notes. The best way I can describe the tribe is just to think of the, like, super general physical characteristics of, like, wheat. Okay. They're not the, they're not the same tribe. They're a different tribe, but they are very damn close. They're, they share the same family name, so they're, like, cousins. Okay. But, like, 
Think of if you're driving by a farmland and you see wheat. What do you think of when you think of wheat? Mm, bread. No. <laughs> you asked. The plant. The That's what plant. I think of. How wheat. is that a wrong answer? <laughs> what the the little kind of germ on the very top, the cluster. The germ, yes, of, the germs, yeah. yes. So that's kind of what panacea is. That's what you think of when you think of panacea. Like all the plants look like that. Okay. Like smaller, more green maybe, but they have that those germs on the top. All right. So that's pretty much roughly what she happened to specialize in. Yes. Yeah. At this specific point in time with her work relating to the Smithsonian. Probably about 1,500 species of it that I don't... Okay, but I generally. Yeah. For those who know. are not botanically grass-specialized, knowledgeable. Yeah, I don't... <laughs> that's roughly <laughs> where we're get, at. How do you get so niche I don't understand. I don't get it. But she started off, off, like, authoring papers about them, and then she ended up assisting Hitchcock as an illustrator. So this is the third person she's illustrating for. Mm-hmm. Then she became his scientific assistant, and then assistant botanist, and then an associate botanist. And she worked with him for 30 years. Okay. Yeah. So, again, her work took her all over the world, and this part really, like, again, it really fascinates me because I, I truly just think of a lot of really safe people just in gardens when I think of botanists, but I am so very wrong. I imagine them, like, in... I guess more like an act- academic setting, like at their desk with like a leaf or something that they just happen to be drawing on like or doing watercolor studies of. Somebody else found those plants and dropped them off. No, no. Nay, nay. She found her own damn plants. Okay. And she was up and down the eastern and southern coasts of the United States, traipsing around South and Central America, took a few trips to Europe, mountains, bugs, nature, the things that make me very uncomfortable. <laughs> And at what point for those 30 years that she's working with this guy, like what years is she active at this point? She was 70 when she retired, and that was, I believe, 1939. So early 1900s. Okay, so she's getting in on this international travel kind of really before World War II hits off then. Yes, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Mary's adventures uh, involved her documenting many unknown species of plants at the time. And they were adopted into her um, into her coworker's manual of grasses of the United States. And then, yeah, there's a whole sure. book. Okay, there's a whole manual of grasses in the United States. <laughs> Let me see how much that is on Amazon. Hold on. Oh, <laughs> She would go on to revise it when he passed away. So it wasn't like she was an assistant. It was they worked together, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, she was actively participating in the work that was being mm-hmm. contributed. And he was like, he was like, yeah, I want her shit. I want it in there. Yeah. Was she credited in the work, in the publication? Yes. Okay, cool. Because I know there's scientists you've covered before that have partnered with people and they have been left out. Of that research. Okay. It says Manual of Grasses of the United States, A.S. Hitchcock, Hitchcock, second edition, revised by Agnes Chase. Two volumes, and this was volume one. So volume one is $19.95. Okay. The truth of the matter is she had 70 publications herself. Oh, that's impressive. Yeah. No, she was super prolific. And she retired at the age of 70, but she continued to work at the National Herbarium for the rest of her life without paying. Mm. But she just, I guess, couldn't stop. She published all the way up to age 93. I I love how the majority of the women that we cover just 
They just won't die. They're like, sorry, I got work to do. I got shit to do. Dad, you can come back later. I still have two research papers that I'm in the process of writing. We can talk then. Oh, my gosh. And even in the retired time, she also traveled to Venezuela to, like, assist her, like, their Department of Agriculture. Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah, that was just more funded research at the age of 71. Like, yeah. oh, my God. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> but while she was in documenting grass and she was... Um, like like this was earlier in her career because at the age of 71 she wouldn't be doing this. But while she wasn't documenting grass, Our Lady was actually an active member of the National Women's Party. Okay. So quick rundown. National Women's Party was a political party that focused on women's suffrage in the United mm-hmm. States. And then once women's suffrage was achieved in 1920, they extended their fight to equal rights. Right? Yeah, because, I mean, honestly, it was really only white women who got that vote. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there were like there were some political parties that wanted women's suffrage who were like, OK, we're done now. And then there were other political parties like this one. They were like, no, we're not done now. Like because at the end of the day, like there were still like there are African-American citizens who were also fighting alongside of these women. And these women were like, no, it's like it's it's time to help the people who helped us. Mm-hmm. And like that's what the National Women's Party was doing before that. Chase is best known for her involvement in the protests led by a group called the Silent Sentinels. Okay. I haven't heard of them. Yeah, I didn't either until last night. It's not fun. There were silent protests in front of the White House. Oh, okay. Yeah, about 2,000 women for two and a half years would just, like, rotate whenever they were, like, they would just go to the White House and, like, pick it. Yeah. But they were silent the entire time. Mm -hmm. These women were obviously harassed constantly, arrested, abused. Yeah. They were often attacked on the street. There was an incident called the Night of Terror involving these women. They kept getting arrested with all of, like, the protests happening. Mm-hmm. Apparently, they needed to outsource space for all of these women. And they ended up putting them in an old warehouse. Okay. Yeah. Shipped them on most of their clothes gave all of the women in that one warehouse exactly one bar of soap, like, for all of them. After, like, they started a food strike because of the conditions of the warehouse, they force-fed them. Yeah, I've, I have heard about this in passing then. Okay. And then on November 14th, 1917, the superintendent of the warehouse ordered guards to completely brutalize the women, like, beat them, chained them up. One woman thought her cellmate was dead because they like they knocked her unconscious and the woman suffered a heart attack because she was like worried for her cellmate Mm -hmm. and mary agnes chase was part of those arrests that she got apparently she got arrested for burning publications by the white house and president wilson that basically just used the word justice and freedom in them she just silently burned them okay and then word eventually got out and people were like super outraged about like what had happened and they were released on the 28th so 14 days later, two weeks. So if it's the same event I'm thinking of, I think that ended up being a turning point because the suffragists used that as basically public relations material to be like, look at how horribly they treat us to create a bit of an outrage that worked in their favor that helped contributing to passing the vote. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Correct. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, the arrests, they weren't just two weeks long, but that particular, like, really shitty time period was two weeks. But these arrests were happening for, like, two years. Mm -hmm. They were constantly, like, taking women in for really dumb shit. So, yep, that's the shit they did. 
Yeah. I don't know. I just thought that was like, that's probably why women would know or like our, our listeners would know about Mary Agnes Chase because she did some shit. Yeah. For that, those, uh, that social work. And like that actually really affected her work sometimes because there were times where they, they were like, hey, if you don't stop, like we're going to have to fire you. Hitchcock was not part of that. But I, I mean, like he was probably like, maybe tone it down mary but like the like bosses were like really putting like hanging it over her head and she's like i don't like i don't care like i want women to have equal rights and i want them to be recognized in their careers whatever they choose Mm -hmm. so that really kept her from like moving even farther forward even though she had a pretty solid career but like there were roadblocks because of her work okay because of her political activism yeah but she did get awarded So among the awards she was given, there was a Certificate of Merit for Distinguished Achievement in Biological Sciences from the Botanical Society of America in 1956. At the age of 89, she was awarded her first and only degree by the University of Illinois. It was a doctorate degree. Oh, nice. Pretty fucking great. (laughs) 89. But then she, at 94 years old, she passed away. Congestive heart failure. Mm. September 24th, uh, 1963. Yeah. That's the only reason she didn't publish up until 94. It's because, you know, she was sick. <laughs> she died. But she died. Uh, yeah, no. She was She was a fighter. She was awesome. She wasn't, yeah. Just because she liked grass doesn't mean she was weak. Boring. Boring. Not even close. <laughs> yeah. No, it's really cool to, to hear about the political work kind of yeah. woven into her scientific studies. She's like, I like grass, but also I'm going to fight you. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my god, that's great. <laughs> that's what I have on her. Yeah. Mary Agnes Chase. All right. Well, yeah, the artist that I'm covering today, she was also politically involved in kind of civil rights on a slightly different level, though. It wasn't quite as drastic of your scientist and what she was doing. Mm, yeah. But I thought it'd be relevant to talk about this artist because. <sighs> Like always, things are kind of shitty here in the United States right now. And mm-hmm. in particular, we've got people harassing and attacking Asian American and Pacific Islander individuals. Mm. Yeah, and people doing that are pieces of shit. Yep. So I, I realize that on my end for artists, when we talk about like racism, like usually I'm focusing on like African American and Native American artists. Mm-hmm. So, and I have covered. Like artists from Japan and Indonesia, but today I am covering our first Japanese American artist, mm. and she's best known for her hanging like woven wire sculptures, and that is sculptor Ruth Asawa. Ooh. And people may be familiar with her work because last year in 2020, the United States Postal Service they honored her by issuing a set of stamps featuring her artwork. Oh heck! Yeah, which. I'm kind of a nerd because I'm really excited to buy her stamps. And I think I'm going to frame them and hang them up with all the other art on my walls. You're such a fucking nerd. I love you so much. I don't care. I don't care. I think I can get them for 20 bucks off of eBay. Oh, my God. Let me me Google. Oh, ooh. Her sculptures. Yeah, they're they're fun. And they photograph really well for being on something like a stamp. So I look forward to forking over money for them. (laughs) But before we can get into, like, how her artwork ended up on stamps, we are going all the way back to 1926 when Ruth was born. Oh, no. What do you mean, oh, no? 1820, okay. Never, no, this is good. This is good. Go ahead. Okay. Don't worry about it. (laughs) 
All right. So like your scientist, she came from a big family. She was the fourth child of seven children to Japanese immigrant parents. And they were located in a suburb right outside of L.A., which is funny. So for those of you who caught our episode a while back about Beulah Woodward, Ruth was living only about 20 minutes away from Beulah was living at the time. Stop. Yeah. Now, okay, given there was like a 30-year age difference, but for they actually did overlap in L.A., which I'm a nerd. I'm like, oh, that's cool. That is no, that's really cool. It's like the world is really small. Yeah, yeah. The more people we cover, it's really funny to see how these like unintentional connection points kind of pop up. Intertwine. So I thought that was interesting. But early on, life for Ruth, it was tough. So her parents were farmers, but because of American discrimination policies at the time, they were not able to become American citizens or own land in California. Oh, fuck off. Bit of an issue with farmers, and even today Farmers of color are still, like, a minority percentage of the whole in terms of who owns, like, farmland in this country. Mm. And then, like, on top of that, when Ruth was three, the Great Depression hit. Yeah. So, I mean, that was hard for everyone, but, like, especially, like, already marginalized communities. Right. They were getting scraps, not even. Yeah, I mean, life was already hard enough to begin with, and then that hits. And so that's even more of an economic, like, disadvantage that these families are being put into. So because of that, like, by the time Ruth is six, like, when she's not at school in the mornings and in the afternoons, like, she's working on the farm. Mm, okay. And apparently as a kid, she could be fairly combative. So her parents always gave her jobs that she, she could do by herself. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. They're like, look, if you're going to argue, just, like, go, like, go break up the hay or something. <laughs> go in the corner. <laughs> yeah. But that was really nice for her. Stop fighting the cow. <laughs> I I know, right? But that, like, time alone allowed her to daydream. Mm. And Ruth said, quote, I used to sit on the back of the horse-drawn le- leveler with my bare feet drawing forms in the sand, which later in life became the bulk of my sculptures. Oh. Yeah. So, like, even as a young kid, like, she was daydreaming. She was creative. And that creativity, it was recognized in elementary school, mm-hmm. which is pretty cool. Oh, good. Yeah, and that's usually the case with, like, the vast majority of people, of artists that we've covered, is that mm-hmm. it, from a young age, they were always creative. And so, thankfully, that was typically always fostered in them. So, coming out of the Great Depression, the United States entered World War II in 1941. That was after the attack on Pearl Harbor. Yeah, that's what I was thinking about. Like, how old was she then? She was about 15 when the U.S. entered World War II. And Europe, they had entered World War II when... Uh, Hitler invaded Poland, and that was in 1939. So they had a two-year head start on us. Got it. After this attack on Pearl Harbor, it was not a good time to be of Asian descent in America. Nope. And specifically Japanese. So in February of 1942, President Roosevelt, he issued the executive order, like, 9066, and that resulted in the internment of Japanese Americans. (sighs) Yeah. So the West Coast was designated a military area and the u.s army acting under like a security matter they forced japanese americans to relocation centers mm-hmm. yeah that were located in remote areas of the country mm-hmm. and that included ruth and her family mm-hmm. so prior to their forced relocation in february of 1942 ruth's father was arrested by the fbi for what for being just one of many men, Japanese-American community leaders. That's how they started. They started rounding up people that were active in the community. 
I feel like that's how it always, like, that's how we, they always get, like, minorities. They go after the heads of the community first. Every fucking time. Like, leave them alone. Just leave them the fuck alone. Yeah, Ruth didn't see her father until six years later in 1948. Yeah. And then uh, just, like, a few months after that happened in April, like, Ruth, her, her mom and her siblings, they were forced out of their home. Um, and they initially for six months were made to live in horse stables at a, a racetrack. And Ruth said about it, quote, the smell of horse dung never left the place the entire time we were there. Oh, my God. And then from there, they were relocated to an internment center. So they went from California, Southern California, all the way to Arkansas. Jesus Christ. And it was pretty shitty. So to drive it, that's a 24-hour drive. On the train, they the windows were forced, like, they were covered during the day. They could not see out of the window because they, like, oh. didn't want them to know where they were. Jesus Christ. Yeah. So they weren't given sunlight. How long was that train ride? Like, really? Ah. I know. I'm sorry. What was, what was the, like, what was the reason that they told, like... They were a threat. They were of Japanese descent. The West Coast specifically was a potential target for attack by the Japanese. I mean, obviously after Pearl Harbor. And so Oh, so there was there was no like masking it. Like like no, how I, the I war mean, on drugs like masked like masked in the nineteen seventies, like trying to target like African American communities because it was like drug related and they had to throw away everybody like into jails. Like it wasn't mask, it was just straight up like these people are threats. Yes. And with the executive order that Roosevelt signed, it didn't explicitly say people of Japanese American descent, but that is exactly how the army operated. Oh my God. What yeah. did what did it say? It basically was because of security measures that individuals that posed a national threat could be like rounded up. Oh goody. And put in these relocation centers as they were turned. Goody. It's a fairly dark chapter of American history. Mm. And, like, families lost everything. And there were over 120,000 people who were put in these centers. And they were split between 10 of them. There were 10 camps nationwide. And typically they lost everything. So property and their businesses and possessions that they had to leave behind. I mean, sometimes these families were given a matter of days before they were forced out and shipped away to these areas. Just, hey, we're going to change your entire life right now. Yes. Yeah. And, like, Ruth, amazingly, like, she wasn't bitter about this time in her Arkansas internment camp. And, I mean, this is when she's, like, in high school. And reflecting on it years later, she said that, yes, it impacted her life, but the person that she was, she was happy with. And that contributed to who she was. Mm. And I'm like, that's a really healthy way of looking at it. But, like, I would have been fucking pissed like i think afterwards yeah. i would have been like fuck this country i'm leaving yeah, no. <laughs> so in the camp ruth she finished high school and she also learned to draw from like disney animators who had been imprisoned as, as well that's pretty fucking great though <laughs> yeah and like, uniquely ruth received a scholarship from a quaker organization and that allowed her to leave the camp and attend college during world war ii quakers are what's up Okay, Quakers are really awesome. I am not religious at all, but I feel like if there is any Christian denomination that I had to align with, it would be the Quakers. Yeah, like they just have their head right on their fucking like shoulders and not like they they don't overimpose and they treat everybody really like well. Like there's no there's no bias. Well, I mean, 
down to earth and forward thinking and progressive. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I mean, I think that's why a lot of the early like suffragists, they were Quakers here in the United States. Yes. Yeah. And Most a lot of, of them, the abolitionists. Yeah. yeah. So it was this Quaker organization. And through them, she was able to attend college for teaching in Wisconsin. And like we learned a few episodes ago, colleges for teaching were normally known as a normal school. <gasps> you finally came across a normal school. Yeah. So the school she went to was initially known as the Wisconsin State Normal School. <laughs> and I have meaning to tell you, so that same episode where you talked to us about normal schools, mm-hmm. so it turned out the artist that I covered had also attended a normal school as well. <laughs> It's so funny how it just suddenly, like, comes out, like, light of day. Like, I exist. I, yeah, I know. You're like, what? I see this everywhere now. But, so the school has since changed names. But, um, yeah, when she was attending, it was the Wisconsin State Teachers College in Milwaukee. That's great. And so, like, while Ruth is at college, it's 1946, you know, a year after the war is over. And at the age of 20, Ruth. She's like, okay, if I'm going to be a teacher, like part of the degree requirements is to have a practice teaching position. Mm. So she heads to her guidance counselor and they were straight up like, we're, we're not going to give you that position. What? Oh. Mm. Mm. They were like, you're Japanese American. We're not going to place you. It could potentially be like a physical risk to her because like anti-Asian sentiment was still really high in the country, even like a year after the war had ended. Well, what the hell is she supposed to do? They let her go through the whole program and then... Never mind. So she she had to leave the school because she's like, you guys aren't going to graduate me. She's like, if I can't have that position, I can't meet my degree requirements. And so on the suggestion of friends, she ended up going to a, a fairly unique art school down in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And okay. in hindsight, she was like, that actually worked out really well because she's like, I always had wanted to be able to focus on my art. And so this allowed me the chance to. I know, but, like, you think an advisor would, like, have caught that before she went through an entire goddamn program. I know. I know. But I just, like, that other setback, it just really speaks to how resilient Ruth was. And she said about it, quote, I learned to accept everything. If it doesn't happen, you just go in another direction. That's fair. I know. She's reading about her. I was like, she was so level-headed. I would have been so salty about all this shit. Yeah. So she ends up going to a art school in North Carolina called Black Mountain College. Mm-hmm. And even for the time, it was a very unique art school. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, honestly, even by today's standards. So by the time she enrolled, it had been open for 13 years. It was in a, like a really rural setting outside of Asheville. And there were no degrees. You took whatever mm-hmm. classes you want. And everyone at the school, like teachers and students alike, they were expected to help out, like, maintaining the campus, you know, cooking the meals and sometimes even building, like, the school itself. Yeah. And, like, the most important aspect of it was that there was no racial segregation. Ooh, that's unusual. I mean, again, because we're still in the late 1940s at this point. Yeah. So one of the founders said about the school, quote, our central and consistent effort is to teach method, not content, to emphasize process, not results. To invite the students to the realization that the way of handling facts and himself amidst the facts is more important than facts themselves. Mm, Okay. So they really wanted a fairly progressive, broad view of things. And I think one reason why segregation didn't factor in is because a lot of the teaching staff were artists that had come over fleeing the Nazis during World War II. Oh, that's really cool. 
So they were already artists that had, you know, faced discrimination for like their political ideologies or sometimes religious beliefs. And so within this bubble, they were just like, anyone can come here. Oh, my God. They were just really welcoming. What school is this yes. again? What's the name? This is Black Mountain College. Oh, man. Very cool. So that type of ideology that they taught, like, that was really impactful for Ruth. Mm-hmm. And then the teaching methods of an artist, Joseph Alberts. He was a German-born artist who taught at Bauhaus, which was, like, a really influential art school in Germany. Mm-hmm. That was shut down by the Nazis. And he's most well-known for his color theory. But, like, Ruth benefited from learning under him and also the scores of European artists that, you know, like I said, had fled from mm. the Nazis. And a yeah. good many of them ended up teaching at the school. Um, and it's a bummer because the school did shut down in 1957 because of, like, money issues. Mm-hmm. It still exists, but as a Christian's boy camp. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, that's kind of lame. <laughs> I'm like, can I go visit it? Because it was really fairly neat architecture for the building itself. Right. But the principles that she learned at college, they did carry over into her own teachings later on. Okay. Now – an influential moment for Ruth's creative work did come in the summer of 1947 while she was at school. And at this point, she had vo- volunteered to be an art teacher outside of Mexico City for the summer. And that was also through another Quaker organization. I'm telling you. I know. Props to Quakers. <laughs> and the, the story goes that Ruth learned from a local woman how to weave baskets out of a wire. Oh, so that explains. Yeah, her work. So that idea of taking like a single line of wire and making it into a three-dimensional form, that is kind of the core of Ruth's creative practice. Very cool. And so what Ruth develops from that idea are like is her most well-known body of work, which are these like large-scale symmetrical abstract hanging forms made from looped wire. And I, I think of it almost like Almost like a snake that swallowed, like, several basketballs. <laughs> so, essentially, you've got, like, a long tube that, like, swells out and tapers back in. Like a really dumb snake. <laughs> I mean, sometimes those little guys, they look ridiculous when they've swallowed, like, there's a huge-ass animal. Oh, I know. But like, how are you moving? <laughs> you silly snake. Snakes are great. <laughs> Yeah, well, unless they're venomous and they bite you in the ankle and then you end up in the ICU for two days. Not fun. No, no that's not fun. <laughs> Have health insurance, kids. Oh, oh God. <laughs> I know my dad was like, oh, be careful, you're going to get bit. I'm like, it's not copperhead season, Dad. That's in August. <laughs> okay, no, it's like April to October. Oh, is it really? Yes. Oh, okay. Well, you obviously do not know when snake o'clock is. No, I don't know when snake o'clock is. It's twice a day. I live in the city. <laughs> Dusk and dawn from April to October, and snakeys are more likely to come out after rain. All I'm saying is snakes here in the city are garden snakes. Now, just don't fuck with the raccoons. You'll be fine. <laughs> or the feral cats. <laughs> or the feral cats. Yeah, don't fuck with the cats. <laughs> uh, continue. My bad. Yeah, so like Ruth's form, you know, it's these tapered kind of undulating hanging forms. And over the years, as her work became more complex, like she embedded pieces within pieces. Mm. But it's like it's just wire, so you can see through it. And what's really neat is that she would use like a continuous spool for the entire piece. Oh, she wouldn't break it apart at all? No, it was just like one continuous piece of wire that she would just like loop over and over and over and over and over again. Damn. Yeah, it was pretty cool. And Ruth said about her work, all my wire sculptures are made from the same loop, and there's only one way to do it. The idea is to do it simply, 
and you end up with a shape. The shape comes out working with the wire. You don't think ahead of time. This is what I want. You work on it as you go along. You make the line, a two-dimensional line, and then you go into space and you have a three-dimensional piece. It's like drawing in space. How does she know when it's done? You know what? That is a good question to ask any artist. And sometimes you just do. You just It's an intuitive kind of matter that you've, you've satisfied whatever form or painting or whatever you may be doing. Oh. <laughs> I know, not a satisfying answer, but... No, it's a bit of a mind fuck. I mean, it's part of the process. I overthink everything. Yeah, don't worry. Artists do that too. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> You're not alone. That's everyone. <laughs> I feel like, is this enough? Do I need more? What's happening here? It's bad. It's bad. Yeah, I mean, I'm working on a project right now, and that's that's where I'm at, so... Oh, It's no. totally normal. Oh, okay. <laughs> and, like, it really is drawing in space. And over the years, Ruth developed her work. You know, she's also branching out to, like, non-symmetrical pieces. Mm. Um, she has a series inspired by, like, a desert plant that... They're really cool. They almost look like root structures. Yeah. And at times, like, like a microscopic, like, cell. Ooh. Ooh, I'm a fan. In the center, she starts with a cluster of, like, anywhere from 200 to 1,000 pieces of wire. So, you know, so it's mm. a really thick line. Yeah. And then... She branches out, at splitting off the wire, so it's get, it gets, like, thinner and thinner and thinner as it goes out. Oh, you mean like a nerve, like a nerve cell. Yes. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. so that's exactly what some of these look like, so they're really cool. Like a ganglion. And she also explored, like, electroplating and bronze casting, but always present in her work was, like, the same visual style of growth, through saying, quote, I'm fascinated by the possibilities of transforming cold metal into shapes that emulate living organic forms. I mean, yeah. They're definitely like, I don't know, they look like they'll eat you. They're really fun. And it's it's this type of work, these almost like cell forms and then also these hanging woven pieces. Mm-hmm. This is the artwork that is on the 2020 commemorative stamps yeah. featuring her artwork. And what's really impressive is that the whole time Ruth is developing her studio practice, she's raising six kids. I'm sorry, how many? Six. Six of them. She had six kids in nine years. Oh, my Jesus Christ. Why? Yeah. So at (gasps) Black Mountain College, Ruth met the architect Albert Lanier, and they married in 1949. Ruth was 23. Both of their parents were against the marriage. Oh, my God. Yeah. So after attending college, they decided to settle in San Francisco because they figured, one, it's an artsy city, and two, we can live there safely as an interracial couple. Oh, my God. Is this a picture of her and her children? Yeah, I'll have one up on the show notes. There's a Christmas picture of them all together in front of the Christmas tree. That's insane. Because, like, for their marriage, like, it wasn't until 1967, the Supreme Court case, Loving versus Virginia, mm-hmm. issued that laws banning interracial marriage were unconstitutional. That's just let people fuck and love whoever they want to. Just stop. I know. If it's consensual, move on with your life. <sighs> so, over the nine years that her family grew to six children, like impressively, Ruth is balancing raising small children, but then also exhibiting her work. Mm. And she had in place a really impressive support network of other artists supporting her and encouraging her. And a lot of them were artists that had previously been at the Black Mountain College. Mm. And she did have one photography friend, Imogen Cunningham. Yeah. And she photographed a good many of Ruth's work. And a lot of those photographs are what's... Yeah, I was about to say... What was used for those stamps. The the photography that I'm seeing of her pictures, they have the same style. Like the same kind of like almost 
sepia. Well, a lot of them are they're Imogen Cunningham's photographs, and she was a leading artist of the day. She was up there with Ansel Adams. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah. So the the shapes, the shapes and the forms are like. Yeah, and I think having that relationship with a photographer that helped expose Ruth's work to a much larger larger audience is because mm. she had these really well photographed images of her and her art to share. And so I I feel like that helped have that broader connection with an audience. And this whole time, like Ruth is, she's also made the choice to professionally be known by her maiden name, Asawa. Good. Yeah. So she's, you know, she's owning her Japanese heritage in that choice. So within the art world, there was some initial hesitancy about Ruth's work just because it was hanging rather than like on a pedestal. Mm -hmm. But before long, Ruth, she's having solo shows and group shows, and she had work at the San Francisco Museum of Art, Perdot Gallery in New York City, Oakland Art Museum, the Whitney Museum of Art, the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. I mean, we're talking some big organizations. Damn. Yeah, and this is all by the time she's 34 in 1960. 34? Yeah, so people were loving her work. She was receiving professional recognition, but things were also backhand at times. Mm. So articles writing about her at the time, they were refer to her as like the housewife of architect Albert Lanier. Oh, fuck off. Or like the mother of six. Oh, fuck off. I know. I know. And there was a bit of controversy with Ruth's first public arts commission. That was in 1968. So she was commissioned to create a piece for a public fountain in like a newly developed area in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So essentially it was like an old factory that was being turned into like posh upscale like shopping center. Mm-hmm. So she designed the work. It was approved. Um, and one evening Ruth and her friends, they installed it. And it, it was her first representational sculpture. So in bronze, she did these two mermaids and like a merbaby. Aww. Yeah, one of the mermaids was like nursing the baby and they were surrounded in the fountain by like lily pads and frogs and turtles and the nursing mermaid she had based it off of a neighbor of hers who had just recently given birth yeah so like she physically looks like like a mother you know a little pooch in her tummy you know my heart yeah and then like the the factory had been like an Italian-owned factory, and mm-hmm. there had been a lot of Italian workers in it. And so mm-hmm. the woman she modeled this mermaid off of, she herself was Italian, too. Oh. <laughs> yeah, so, like, Ruth was like, you know, let me build on these community connections. Right. And really tie the sculpture into the place. And it also overhappened to look like the San Francisco Bay, you know, so that connection of water and mermaids. So she it all, like, tied together. And the guy who oversaw the development of the square, he was so fucking pissed. Because because of a woman breastfeeding? Well, among other things, but yeah. He he mailed like a two-page diatribe to newspapers and to national design firms, blasting the fountain as inappropriate for the design of the square and like calling it for, for it to be like dismantled and removed. What? He was like, it's Victorian and it's outdated and it's Disney childlike. What? And instead he wanted something that focused on, quote, Interplay of water and metal would give free play to the essential qualities of water, not formulized and constrained, but organically evolved what? in the form of, quote, abstraction for the fountain, the shaft of metal about 15 feet high. Really? He, he wanted a he wanted a phallic. <laughs> okay, so the best part of this was like the public support for Ruth. <laughs> 
All right, so one woman, it's just one woman of the public, she called the developer's office and told him to, quote, take your 15-foot shaft of metal and go sit on it somewhere. (laughs) So that was, like, the public sentiment towards him. Oh, my God. That's hilarious. Yeah, and someone had even, like, taken a photograph of the fountain and had drawn on it, like, a really large penis, essentially. <laughs> and they were like, here you go, Mr. Developer. Here's your 15-foot shaft. Oh, my God. Yeah, so the public was essentially like, fuck off. And that just kind of like, I think this exchange really endeared Ruth and her work to like a larger audience. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So I think because of that, and at that time, she had already been working in the San Francisco art scene for over 20 years. Like, yeah. her, her name was very well known. Oh, that's great. That's fucking great. I'm looking at it now. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that guy was fucking salty. And it's really funny because, like, the fountain is still there and there's, like, a memorial plaque, a historical plaque in front of it. And end of day, like, it's Ruth that people remember. It's not this fucking dickhead developer. The dickhead who wants the chef. Right. Um, oh my now, God. that same year as her first public commission in 1868, Ruth is also appointed to the San Francisco Art Commission. And with another parent, like she starts a school age art program. Oh. Yeah. So this is when we get into her social work because essentially with her kids in school, she realized just what a crap art education they were getting. Yeah. And so her and another parent were like, no, we can make this better. That's exciting. So with money coming in from her public commissions, like, Ruth was able to channel that new position into, like, funding community projects. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh, my God. And, like, she was very adamant about providing a solid art education to her community. Mm-hmm. And as she saw it, quote, art will make people better, more highly skilled in thinking and improving whatever business one goes into. Right. Or whatever occupation. It makes a person broader. That's so cool. And so for her, that meant starting with teaching kids. Yeah, you got to start young. Okay, the irony here was that even though Ruth had studied art with, like, leading international artists and was a leading figure herself and had gone to school to be teacher, Mm -hmm. she couldn't be hired as an art teacher. It's such trash. She didn't have that degree. Uh. Yeah, that the university had refused to give her. So because she wasn't licensed, the state couldn't hire her to work in a public school. And so she she worked around that being a volunteer. Mm, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And like, at times she did need like a licensed teacher to sit in on her summer classes. <laughs> I know. I, it was a bit ridiculous. I have a fucking licensed teacher sit in on a, on a nationally renowned artist. I know. I know. <laughs> The nice thing, though, was that in 1998, the Wisconsin school, they did issue her a degree. Oh, good. I mean, she was only 72 at the time. You know. But, I mean, better late than never. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Ruth's advocating for a stronger art education in the San Francisco public school system, it it did materialize in the region's first admissions-based art magnet program. Ooh. Yeah, and that was founded in 1982 when she was 56. So Ruth wasn't necessarily involved in the running of it, but she was she did contribute to the creation of the school itself. Got it, got it, got it. And it's pretty cool because in her lifetime in 2010, the school was renamed after Ruth. Oh yeah, so it's now the Ruth Asawa School for the Arts. Oh my gosh. I know um Margaret Cho, the comedian, uh-huh. she she's one of the alumni of the program. That's amazing. <laughs> 
So in, in 2002, at 76, Ruth did her last public artwork. Mm-hmm. And she worked with two landscape artists to create a public remembrance garden at the San Francisco State University. And that contains boulders from each internment camp. Oh. There's 10 in total. Damn. Yeah. And then four years later, when she was 80, she had a major retrospective at the Fine Arts Museum of San Francisco. 80 years old? Yeah. I, I mean, to live to see that. And that show just helped further, like, awareness and academic appreciation for Ruth's work. Oh, my God. That's going to be insane to, like, look at have people, like, honor you like that. And while you're still living. I yeah. mean, that, that's such a big deal. Especially when you came from, like, a background where people, like hated you just by looking at you like it seemed in the 1950s like fairly quickly on like she was showing uh like a big gallery in new york city and then all these Mm -hmm. art museums and i'm not really sure what that happened like what happened right because we've covered like african americans of the time who basically were like shut out of like the gallery scene because of american racism Mm -hmm. and they had to make like exhibition opportunities for themselves right right or sometimes they would just they would go to, like, France or, like, Mexico. Right. They would just peace out. Yeah. So, I mean, you'd expect there would be an aspect of racism, too. Right. In the, you know, 1940s and 1950s. But I have a feeling that her connections with really big-name artists from the Black Mountain College yeah. helped facilitate her into the art world. So that's an area I would like to know more about. And there are books that have been written pretty extensively about her biography. Do you think maybe her connection with her husband or white male architecture husband? That probably factored into it as well. Yeah. So oh. those are some dynamics I would like to learn more about. So <laughs> Oh, no. Some questions. Well, but, I mean, I'm just happy that she kind of right off the bat, she had that initial success. And she carried that momentum, like, throughout her life, yeah, which is really amazing. Cut her out, which is really, yeah. It's hard. Yeah. It's really hard for people to keep that momentum. I mean, just being an artist in general but then also you know the different layers of sexism racism and you know Mm -hmm. class that have to play into it keep creating after everything is like falling down on you it's yeah so i was really impressed by ruth's resilience and at the age of 87 in 2013 ruth osawa she passed away peacefully in her sleep oh yeah i love her i know she was really sweet out of all the artists that have covered her estate, like they're they have a really good website dedicated to her. Oh wow! Yeah, and that was really helpful. Um, so we'll definitely link to that in the show notes, and of course the books that I mentioned, you know, that'll be included in there as well. If anyone's Yay. curious about learning more about Ruth Asawa, but that is Japanese American sculptor. Go out and buy her stamps. I'll be doing the same. But so, yeah, so that is Ruth Asawa, our first Japanese American that I've covered. But so, yeah, so that's what I've got for today. And as always, if you guys have made it this far, you guys are really awesome. Yes, thank you. I know, of course, if there's artists or scientists that you you think we should cover, you know, reach out. We were definitely open because we realize that we have our blind spots. I tend to cover sculptors a lot. I love you. That's just my little bias. (laughs) So, Milana, if people want to find out more about the people that we've covered today, where can they go? We have a website, myfavoritefeminist.com. Our Facebook and Instagram are both under myfavoritefeminist. Our Twitter is at Milana Megan. That's at M-I-L-E-N-A-M-E-G-A-N. 
it takes two minutes to rate, subscribe, like whatever, and in any of our comment section below our email, which is info at myfavoritefeminist.com. You can let us know if you are going to devote yourself to studying exactly one kind of plant. What plant would it be? Okay. Mine's a bit of a cop-out. I'm just going to say tea. I hate you. I love tea. I hate you. Green tea. Herbal tea. <laughs> all the herbal teas, which, I mean, that's just not one plant at all. But I just, I love tea. I hate you. My newest favorite tea is butterfly pea flower tea. And it's, it has a slightly mild earthy flavor to it. But when you brew it, it's a very vibrant blue. And it's a traditional drink of, like, Thailand and it's also used for dyeing cloth just because of the richness of the color. But if you put a few drops of lemon juice in it, the tea goes from a rich blue color to purple. And then if you put more lemon into it, it goes pink. I have questions. But it's I'm really not, neat. I'm not going to ask them. So what uh, about you, Miss Tea Hater? Carnivorous plants. Okay. All right. <laughs> I mean, you can't drink them. I mean, you could, but you probably shouldn't. No, probably not, considering the kind of things they have Fine. to lure things into them, like the juices inside of them. So I know a little bit about, like, Venus flytraps. Yeah. And there's a particular region in North Carolina that they're native to. Mm -hmm. And apparently they're, they're not native to that many areas. And... A national park that falls into that area has, in the past few years, had a devastating amount of poachers that come and steal Venus flytraps. What? Yeah, because there's like an international market for them. What? There's supposedly a compound that's found in the plant that has like medicinal qualities. I don't understand. And so this national park has to protect against these poachers that come and steal their Venus flytraps. That's insane. It's a thing. That's insane. I will link to the news article in our show notes. <laughs> oh but that's that's the only thing I got for you for carnivorous plants. Oh, yeah. There's some there are a shit ton of them. They all look like they would kill me. That would be pretty cool as a botanist to specialize in. <laughs> I don't know. They just like, what, like, how? Like, how? So, as always, you guys are pretty awesome. And we'll see you next time. So, until then. Sorry, I sorry. I just I literally got a text that was jumping up while you're talking. It was I wish I had a blowhorn. I would blow it every time I saw these churchgoers hug each other whilst I sit outside and smoke a Jesus joint because she sits she lives next to a church. Leave room for Jesus. Six feet of room, ma'am. Do you want your baby to meet Jesus? Then why are you letting strangers hold her?